Welcome to It's Art, Let's Talk About It, a podcast sponsored by the Museum of Western Art in Kerrville, Texas. Located in the heart of the Texas Hill Country, the museum is dedicated to the preservation and promotion of the American West, especially through the art of the West. In this podcast series, we will visit with artists, art collectors, and gallery directors working in the Western art genre. We'll talk about the history and heritage of Western art, and we'll talk about why talking about Western art is so important. I'm Daryl Beecham, the executive director of the museum, and I'll be your host for It's Art. Let's talk about it. The podcast is a member of the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network. In this episode of It's Art, Let's Talk About It, we visit with one of the most influential and instrumental artists of the Western pop art movement, artist Billy Shank. A pioneer of the contemporary art movement, we'll talk to Billy about his career in the world of Western pop art and how he and a few others provided a conceptual and aesthetic counterpoint to the traditionalism of Western art. And welcome to It's Art, Let's Talk About It. Our guest today is none other than the pop artist, Billy Shank. And Billy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, this is a, we're doing this also in front of a live studio audience, if you will, which adds a whole new level of drama. It's true. I've never done this with anybody listening or watching before. (laughs) (laughs) It really is a different, all of our other podcasts, Billy, have been just me and the artist in a room by ourselves. And so having a bunch of people staring at you is a unique unique deal. Let's start with the obvious, Billy Shank, pop artist. You've been around a long time, man. And yeah, the earth was only about 200 years old when I started. You're one of the original (laughs) pop artist people. I've heard you referred to as the granddaddy of pop art. Granddaddy of the contemporary Western. Contemporary Western. Western. Yeah. Let's talk about this. How did you get into contemporary Western work? Uh, When I was in art school in Kansas City in the late 60s, a friend of mine took me to go see a matinee in the afternoon of couple of western films and I actually was not a big fan of any western films up to that point in time and the two films that went we went to see was Fistful of Dollars and A Few Dollars More by Sergio Leone and that really got my attention and then later in my senior year at Kansas City the third one came out in that trilogy it was The Good and the Bad the Ugly and I have considered myself since I had started art school when I was 18 to be nothing but a contemporary artist and some of my mentors and all that had already gone to New York and that was the only viable place along with a couple of galleries in the, on the west coast if you were going to launch a career as a contemporary artist. So right out of art school I happened to graduate in December of 1969 and moved to New York one week after the new year. And a friend of mine got me a loft. We were down in Soho in the southern part of Manhattan where the whole art scene was just beginning to really explode. And then a few months later, the fourth movie came out of Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. And I thought, man, this guy is getting to me in a huge way. And I finally decided at the tender age of 23 or 22 or whatever it was that I wanted to do what to Western painting what he had done to Western films. And I thought that was, a, in retrospect, a huge arrogant statement to make, but that's what I set out to do. Even though I had spent all my summers, a lot of my summers in Wyoming, I'd been around, we had cattle, horses, all that when I was a kid growing up, and was around rodeo in Wyoming. It was just, for me to get involved in that kind of lifestyle was completely a 180 degree turn from 
you know, where my head had been. So anyway, I'm trying to figure out what am I going to paint as a Western subject matter. And somebody else had the idea, a friend of mine, why not do takeoffs on black and white movie stills? And I thought, wow, that's okay, that's a real idea. And we have some of those here in the, in the different cases today. And that's what I did to launch my career with Western subject matter. And fortunately, in New York, there were two of these little small places that all they sold was movie stills. And it wasn't just Western movie stills, it was everything. So they had as much as a million and a half, two million movie stills, but you had to know either the titles of the films you were interested in, or they also cross-categorized them by the stars. And so I started doing my homework real fast. And at the time, there were books that came out that were histories of all the Western films. So I'd flip through those, and I would have my titles, and I'd go up to the store. And these things cost dollar and a half, two dollars. I'd buy a dozen, buy another couple dozen, or whatever, and I'd bring them back to my studio. And since I wasn't such a terrific draftsman, I couldn't just look at a photograph and then try to draw it to scale up on a canvas. Photorealism had just become a legitimate school of painting in New York in the mid-1960s with Chuck Close and some of the other photorealists to follow. I started projecting with an opaque projector and and project directly onto the canvas and then outline everything. And I developed this instantly this paint-by-number system. So what I had done was make a marriage of pop by doing a paint-by-number style to photographs, which is photorealism. So that's how I came up with this, actually, in retrospect, a unique approach to making any kind of imagery. And I read in New York City that your first gallery show sold out. Yeah, it sold out before it opened. There you go. Kind of hard to beat a deal like that. And I never did. And then you were out. Yeah. Just <laughs> slowly slid south. You mentioned the paint by numbers in the 1960s, 50s, 60s, right. 70s. Paint by number kits were real popular among yep. kids. And honestly, it was the only way I could draw or paint right. anything was to do the paint by numbers. And in your books that we have for sale at the museum store, you talk about that laying paint next to each other right. versus blending yes. the paints together. And you were one of the first to do that, and still among your contemporaries, yeah. one of the very few who still does it. Yeah, it, it seemed like an obvious way, if you couldn't draw, <laughs> to be able to project these things. And then I also wasn't able to model paint like on a figure from this side to that side. But if I flattened it and then flattened the shadow, I could hopefully make it convincing. And I just kept perfecting the style over the next 53 years. And I'm just amazed that other people didn't try that same approach. I'm glad they didn't actually. It gives me a unique place. One of the things that people, one of my sons said to me, when you walk up to a Billy Shank painting, it's a Billy Shank painting. There's no doubt about it because that unique style. This current exhibition that we have at the Museum of Western Art, we're calling Visions, Mystic Visions of the West. And it, it is, I think, a pretty comprehensive showing of your work in, since at least the 1980s. Would you? You've got one piece here we just bought back at auction a year ago. I think it's 19, yeah, 1980. And yeah, so there's 43 years of work throughout this show. And when you walked in this morning into the gallery, it was, I heard you say, wow. I did. And so <laughs> I, I felt pretty good about that, that we had... Talk about this show and what it means to to be in a museum. This is not your first museum show. No, 
Uh, it is. This is uh, hundred. I said eighty something this morning, and you corrected well, me. It was a hundred and something. Solo shows it's somewhere around 125, 130. Wow. Museum shows it's getting close to 20. My first one was 40 years ago in 1983 at the Scottsdale Center for the Arts. But I'll tell you what, in this environment, I was impressed. These paintings look better than I can remember them being. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's okay to say. <laughs> but uh, I went around and looked, and I'm like, God, I resolved that okay. I did this okay. This is, uh, I like this. Let's talk about subject matter. Over the years, <laughs> and I first became a fan years ago with the Phaedra series, the nude cowgirl riding the mythic West. And I insisted when Rebecca and I talked, about putting a, the fate, one of the Phaedras in, and she said, are you sure? It's a nude cowgirl riding the Southwest, and we have two in this exhibition, but I first, I fell in love with Billy Shankworks by seeing a nude cowgirl on a horse, I, being the young man at that time that I was. But it's not your only series, right? You've done surfer girls yep. and landscapes yep. and those sorts of things. Talk about the different series. It evolved from the black and white movie stills. I can remember after the first 20 of these <clears throat> paintings based on movie stills, I made this really idiot notion to myself, I'm not going to paint women, I'm just going to paint these cowboys and all these paintings. And then a year later, I painted my first cowgirl, and I go, whoop, I guess that theory blew up <laughs> real quick. And then it expanded from, even by 1978, 79, I was doing real pop stuff. I did a series based on the Kellogg's cornflakes. Right. They always had, the Wheaties had, was it cornflakes or Wheaties? They had like star athletes on the fronts of their covers. So I thought I would do a degenerate series based on that. And so I had <laughs> punk cowgirls with pistols and cigarettes hanging out of their mouth. There's a couple like that over in the other gallery over there. And I did some even of me with black leather jackets, sunglasses on, just looking totally arrogant. And again, hanging a cigarette out of your mouth. And the bottom of the box of cereal would say, start each day with eight essential vitamins. Well, I changed that to eight essential drugs. And then I had others where I had an emblem would say, free punk pistol inside. Just anything that was undermining all that wholesomeness that was on those weedy cereal boxes. So that was one series. And then just other series evolved from there, and it still Sur does. Surfer Girl? Yeah, they started, oh gosh, I don't know, two, maybe 10 years ago now? Yeah. Something like that. And then of course the Phaedra series, and then yeah, there's the a landscape series, yep. of the, yep. all of those. Uh, in many of your paintings, you really do big clouds, big yes. landscapes. Yep. Talk about landscapes for a minute. They're all of the Southwest, yep. a lot of Utah, yep. a lot of Monument Valley, a lot yep. of Arizona where you currently live. They you live in... Uh, yeah, sorry, Arizona and New Mexico where you currently live. I didn't start doing any landscapes without figures in them until I think it was around 2000, 99, 2000. And I did four that I thought were pretty successful. They were large scale. And then after that, they just didn't... I don't think they were as well resolved as I'd like them to be. But I kept being persistent and stubborn. And I think roughly four or five years ago, I think I figured out how to paint these things so even I liked them. And then I had a show out in Salt Lake City. Well, that, was the, that was just a year and a half a ago. ago. Yeah. And that was the first all landscape show I'd ever done. And that was actually the, financially the most successful show I've done since the very first show in New York City. 52 years ago. 
with landscapes. Yeah. yeah, I was surprised. I was glad. One of the things I want to ask you about, because we've already discussed it, is that you didn't think, honestly, that the Museum of Western Art would ever show your work. Yeah. A board member of ours, David Lackey, came to me one day and he said he had been to Santa Fe and had the privilege of taking a tour of your home and studio and all that and brought me one of your books, one of the catalogs, and it had your cell phone number in it. And he said, because I've been preaching for four years now, we need to occasionally shake it up. This is not your grandfather's Western (laughs) art, but you were surprised when I called. I was because I thought I knew this museum from its inception as the granddaddy of the CAA uh, group of artists. And I thought, there's in a million years when David said, would you like to show here? What? (laughs) How's that possible? But I guess I didn't know until I met Daryl that you had changed direction four years ago. I was not aware of that. Yeah, I'm not so sure it's a change in direction, but an adding art that is relevant to the Western art movement, more than just cowboys in a stream looking left or right. Photorealism is important. Your paint style is unique. Your subject matter is out there. This is not your granddaddy's Western art, so to speak. And so. Sometimes the subject matter is traditional, but it, I go off in wonky directions, that's for sure. So let's talk on that just a second. We get, and when I announced that we were going to be doing a Billy Shank show, honestly, I've had some purists, if you will, who kind of curled their lip and raised their eyebrow a little bit. Don't doubt that for a minute. Talk about that over the years. You've been the outlier. You've been that uh, guy who's been on the edge. Yeah, I kind of live between two worlds. When I was in New York, and I'm surrounded by all these contemporary peers and my mentors and heroes and all that, but when I started doing this figurative work, and it was consistently being Western subject matter, I did three solo shows in a five-year period in New York, and the shows slowly sold less and less, and I could see I was writing my ticket right out of New York City, and I could see that there was low level of disdain for this isn't contemporary. So I became out on the edge as an ex-contemporary artist, living in exile now in Wyoming and Arizona, and started my career all over there with this subject matter, which was even more wild, the early real pop stuff. And the traditional Western folks <laughs> wouldn't go near me with a 10-foot pole. It was, so my career has been there in between ever since. And I do really appreciate the fact that even though I live on the edge of the mainstream Western art world, that I've had a place in it, that I've been able to make a living, I've been do okay. And I do have a crossover of collectors who do collect contemporary work and collect me. I get to have a taste of both worlds. It makes a lot, it means a lot to me when I know somebody's bought a painting, they got a loft in New York and they've got, I'm on the same wall with an original Warhol, I'm on the same wall with Roy Lichtenstein. I've been in other group museum shows with literally every living and the deceased 20th century contemporary. Well, it was recently a, a show with the works of Bill, with Andy Warhol at the Briscoe Museum, a sister yep. museum right down the road in San Antonio and that was a fabulous show. Yep. But you've been put into various categories. Luis Jimenez, yep. for example, the guy who did the great big monument at the Denver airport. Right. People either love or hate. Love or hate comes into your work a lot. Nope. Again, I've had people who say they curled their lip and kind of raised their eyebrows when you're going to do a Billy Shank show. How does that fit in to here? But you're not 
a fake cowboy. No. Nope. And that's what people don't, don't realize. And I, that's one of the things I want to get out of this podcast is I was, the more I got to know about Billy Shank and I got to know not only your work, but the man, it's not every artist I know that can claim to be a multi-time world champion cowboy. One-time world champion. World-time world champion. One-time world champion. But multi-other belt yeah. buckles. Yeah, there's 15 belt buckles, four saddles, four state championships for the state of New Mexico. Okay, so one world championship. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's okay, right? Yeah. But it's not Billy Shank, who's a pop artist, who doesn't know anything about the native, the world that we talk about, this world. Yep. And you use real figures in the world, real landscapes. So this is not a world you're making up totally in your head. You live this world. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, when I, that was one of the series I started after the first movie stills. I started shooting my own slides at rodeos in 1974, and that, I think 74, 75 was the first all rodeo subject matter that I did, and I did a lot of rodeo subject matter through the early 80s. And I was, like I said earlier, when I started doing all this stuff, and it was because of how much Sergio Leone had impacted me, I fell into the lifestyle. I, we had horses growing up, we had cattle, pigs, chickens all kind of, I hated it it was insane I just and I think it's ironic that it came back around all the way we've got cattle now we got horses I've still rodeo you we cowboy do. every day though not that often anymore not anymore <laughs> I'm a little old but you have horses and cattle yep I've seen your place the... yep I did just get another paycheck two weekends ago do it ranch sorting that's when I won the world championship in and that meant a lot to me at 76 that I can still compete with people all the way from their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and still walk away with a paycheck. I had second place. I haven't quit yet. <laughs> I would guess not. <laughs> it's at this point that we want to turn it over to audience participation. And I guess I don't know how this works, honestly, with I'm going to take my headset off. And if you've got a question, anybody got a question out there? Oh, come on, folks. I'm not, not a Baptist. Let's start back there in the back and give us your question and I'll repeat it. The question was Do you listen to music while you paint? Let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about the process of creation, if you yeah. will. Um, yes and no. I, first of all, I, it's, I'm not, it's not just me in the painting studio, unlike probably most other artists, particularly Western artists. I've always had studio assistants. As I told Daryl earlier today, sorry. That's my brother, uh, Larry. Remember Larry <laughs> that's what I'm I've done a total, I'm a prolific painter. I've done 2,300 paintings of Western subject matter in 53 years. I've done nine of them from beginning to end. The rest of them I've had help. So what I do when I project the imagery, I'm picking the colors, I'm getting the composition, I'm doing what I call the first coats and then with a palette, and it's marked with little piles of paint, my help comes in to do the second coats to actually flatten it up. Now, while we're doing that, some studio assistants are fine with hearing music all day long. Now I've got a young girl who I just got out of art school, and she likes silence. I have music on in the mornings before she gets to work, and again in the afternoons and on the weekends. What do I listen to? I quit listening to mainstream rock and roll in 1969, when. Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin all died. I grew up with country western behind me all the time, Hank Williams, stuff like that. I listened to um, all kinds, just everything, classical. You, you paint every day? Yes. 
every day that you possibly can. I like flew to... home this morning and painted for an hour before I came back yep. from the show. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. But obviously, if you're not on the road or doing something, yeah. like your routine through the day is yes. what? You get up early? Yeah. Sometimes, if I haven't slept much, what I mean, I was in the studio, I think, the day before yesterday at 5.30 in the morning, so I got four hours of work done before my studio assistant showed up, and we have other people who are on staff helping us there. So it gets a little chaotic, and then everybody's gone by four, and if I still have energy, I'll come back again and work on my own in the evening for a few hours, and of course the weekends when I'm not rodeoing, or even after. We have our own practices at our place when I'm not doing shows, so I invite people over, and at this time of year, we're in the saddle and chasing cattle at 8 a.m., and done at 11, because otherwise, in this weather, you're going to kill your horse, going to kill the cows. Then I go back to the studio on a Saturday afternoon. I listen to musical scores, like my favorite is a man named Preisner, who is Polish, and he did all the sound, all the scores for a friend of his who's now dead, I can't remember, it's another Polish director. Listen I, to reggae. <laughs> I fully expected when I walked in to, to have a spaghetti western going in the background. Oh, there's sometimes there are. It's sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the soundtracks from all the Sergio Leone films, Ennio Morricone. Ennio Morricone's theme song for The Good and the Bad and the Ugly is actually the most well-known piece of music in the history of the world. I know that's a big statement, but it's true. If it isn't true, I'm making it true. There you go. <laughs> Let's talk about that. In fact, in many of the books and a lot of the literature, there's the legend. And that seems to be a theme that pops up in your art. Sometimes if the truth's not good enough, create the legend. It's that The line comes from, are you familiar with The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, sure. John Ford G- film, 1962? Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. He's on the train with his wife and they're leaving the West. And he gets interviewed by a newspaper man. And he makes the statement that I think Jimmy Stewart makes the same. Yeah. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Yeah. I definitely have believed in doing that forever. How much truth is there in your paintings? If you can wind yourself around <laughs> the corners and all that, you will find there's authenticity. Okay, there well, is truth. While our audience is thinking of the next question, okay, just a second. While we, okay. Let's talk about the Shank Foundation. Oh, yes. One of the things that impressed me when I was at your home and your studio was an incredible body of work that you hope to make public with Mm -hmm. people. You offer tours now of your studio Mm -hmm. to groups. That's how Mr. Lackey and others have found you through the years. But you purchased a plot of land across the street, and the goal is to build the Shank, Billy Shank Museum, the Billy Shank Foundation. Let's talk about the Shank Foundation for a second. I'll back up to say that when I moved to Santa Fe, I bought a piece of property that ended up with the, the state historian from New Mexico wanted to put on the state and national historic register because of the architect who was world-renowned as a landscape architect. So he has a legacy that's huge. And we have groups coming to see the architecture and the landscaping that he did at our place. And they've come from different universities around the country. They've come from Europe. We've had them from Belgium, from France. And then... I also wanted to have something for my own legacy, so we, you'll notice some of these paintings are not for sale. These are from our personal collection. The foundation is being formed right now as we speak. We're going to be signing more paperwork with the lawyer on Wednesday, and we have approximately 90 paintings of my career from 1971 all the way to the present. 
Rebecca and I are also compulsive collectors, so we have a substantial collection of mostly contemporary Western painters and to some degree historic. Some right. of the Talos Masters, some of that we have like several Maynard Dixons. You know. It's an impressive collection, but the one that, because I see flat art all the time, one of the mm -hmm. things that impressed me greatly was prehistoric pottery. That's Probably so, one of the most impressive collections of that I've seen, and I've been in the museum industry for a number of years. No, that one's a world-class one. It's I'm a world-class collection, Yeah, um, and I would like for people to be able to see it, and I think is right. that your goal as well? Yeah, and another thing that the foundation will be good for, are we have a world-class collection of this stuff, but you're no longer able to donate any of that to publicly funded museums anywhere in the country. And the prehistoric pots that are in these public collections are quietly being put away and not being seen, and that's because of political pressure from indigenous groups all over the country, you know, right or wrong. And I am doing a book right now, we're pretty close to just finishing the editing, of actually identifying individual artists by their signature style and these were all women that made all of this pottery. And I, I cover everything from about 750 AD to about 1600. And there's 750 photographs in the book. And it's about a little less than 400 pages. So what I want to do is preserve and get out to the world. You know, the, I keep hearing we don't see enough of women artists in the contemporary as well as the Western world. And I'm thinking, man, we got some of the best hard-edge abstract artists in the world right there in Arizona, New Mexico, in southern Utah and Colorado who made these pots. Now, granted, it was utilitarian wear to some degree, but if they had been working on canvas and painting flat, they could rival any abstract painters alive ever. It's impressive, that's for sure. So I want recognition for them. So that's another reason why the foundation is important. I have already inherited all the archives for the Membries Foundation. That was a specific group in southern New Mexico. They're the most well-known of any of the prehistoric cultures around the world. And we're getting archives from other amateur archaeologists from the 1920s and 1930s. There's two others that have done drawings and provenanced everything they found. And I have other collectors who are our age, my age, they don't know what to do with their collections. The children don't want anything to do with anything they've done with their life or collections. So they have nowhere to go. They can't donate it to museums. If I have a foundation and it's privately funded, that's a safe place. I will throw this out that the Museum of Western Art is a privately funded Okay. organization, so I'm just saying. Yeah, don't be a rival. <laughs> I just I fell in love with your, the, a lot of the art and all of that, but the pot collection also blew me away. I believe we had a question right back there. Yeah, Becky. This one right here? Yeah. yeah. I'm a huge fan of irony. Yeah, I'm a big fan of irony. Irony. And that's a black and white. The woman with the child in the covered wagon is from a black and white movie, something Barbara Worth, 1926. So I wanted, I had that image for years and I didn't know how to, what I wanted to do with it. But then I started this, here's another series, of these descansos. 
And descansos is Spanish for where the soul rests in peace. And you see them all over the roadside memorials. Descansos. Yeah, or Spanish. So I've decided, what would a cowboy descanso look like? First of all, they don't exist in the real world. The descansos are for individuals that they didn't know cowboys had descansos. But I thought, I'm going to make one. It's going to have a cowboy hat. There's his gun, his holster, and his boots and spurs. But this guy was not a good man. And you can see by the whiskey bottles and the beer bottles and all that. And I thought, this is my sense of humor, is yes, that pioneer woman wouldn't be walking away from somebody that's got 21st century artifacts. But I liked mixing all that together and making my own mythology. And then the title it, He Was No Good, that tells you some backstory about why she's alive and he's not. So who did the killing? <laughs> who did the burying? Other questions? Yell them out. Did nine works, she said, you're talking about nine works in your body of works, that you, nine works that you've done start to finish without the aid oh, yeah. of an assistant. So my question is, are those in private collection or are they available to be seen in public? And where are those paintings? They're in the public. Where are those paintings? I think all of them are gone. Four of them happened during the pandemic. I couldn't, my It's interesting, you, had to, you couldn't bring in assistance because of the pandemic. No, we were all afraid of getting sick and my assistant then was a Potawatomi Indian from Oklahoma, and he has little kids, and he was really concerned, as we were, because kids can bring home right. stuff from school and all that. So I scaled down some work so that I would do the, all the first coating and the palette, and he and I would meet in a parking lot it, in different cars, and we would just hand off the painting and the palette, and he would take it home and finish it. While he was doing those, I just did some others, and I just kept them at the studio to finish myself. And mine were a little bit rougher than, than what other people can help me do. I've always had help doing everything I want to. I'm a believer in anybody who can do anything better than me, I want them with me, because it's not, I don't need this. Oh, I'm the best, I can do this. And it's, it's like being a movie director. You go to a movie set, the director's got the vision. But somebody else has written the screenplay. Somebody else is producing it. Somebody else is doing the props. There's 14 people acting. And there's, that's what I feel like I'm doing. It's my but, vision. It's my idea. I'm the director. Billy, let's talk about somebody who does something remarkably well, and that is represents you, and that's Rebecca. Yeah. You guys have been together for a number of years. have been partners since early 2000s. Yep. And... If you want to get to Billy Shank, you, you got to talk to Rebecca. That's true. Off the top. I don't even know if she's still in here. She's back there in the back. But talk about Rebecca and how important that is. That Let me just back up to say I met Rebecca in 1983 or 84. And I had a young studio assistant. I was 36. And I had this young guy who was working for me. And he was so proud. Let's start again with okay, so Rebecca. He was, I was 36, he was, I don't know, 22 or something like that. But he was, he said, I want to meet, I want you to meet my new girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay. So we go over to Scottsdale and meet at a bar restaurant near the Scottsdale Center for the Arts. And so who he brought in was Rebecca. So I met her, she was 21 years old at the time. And we got to be good friends. She eventually broke up with him and, and uh, 
she and I never dated at that time, but we went to baseball games together. She helped me restore a pot. She had a couple of, it was just, we did a lot of things in common and stayed in touch with each other over the decades. And then we got together in 2004, 2005. And we've been together ever since. And Rebecca is a terrific partner for me for a million different reasons, but she also grew up in a household that her father was an artist. She was, when I met her, she was in the art business as a, as a salesperson in a gallery, so she understood the business. She traveled to Chicago and New York to, when she worked for a print shop that was doing original lithographs and that was selling those to different institutions and so forth around the country. So as we got together, she just slowly took over running a whole business, which I much prefer. She does a great job doing all that. And that, there's a lot of that, that, yeah, you can see when you talk to Billy Shank, Rebecca answers the phone. Yeah. Yeah, and keeps everything you, on track you, with you. You call me, you're going to get a blank slate. You're not going to get any real answer of any kind. Let's talk about your books real quickly. Uh, yeah. A couple of them produced by Shank Southwest, like this, the book here, works that, it's just a lovely book with quotes and an overview of your collection. That was just a slice. That was 2014. Just right. some of my favorite paintings from that year. This book. And then there's the Billy Shank Museum and Corporate Public Collections. And we're going to put the links on the website for the podcast. And people can order them and they can buy them right here at the museum. Yeah, so. we have all these here. I just might add at this point, I'm in 60 museum collections, which is more than any other living Western artist. And I'm proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully 61 soon. Yep. Yeah, we've already talked about that. Hopefully 61 pretty soon. But the big pink book is the corporate and museum collections right. book. The, and the one that fascinates me is the Shank Southwest, this big blue book. It's so eloquently done, and it features a pretty good look at the career of Shank in the 21st century by Amy Abrams. Uh, and if you look through the book, it, it talks about churches and crosses, and uh, I recognize old Shatterhand in here and uh, the west as it never was and several of the from the cowgirl series and those books so those are available for us as well but you recently had a new book that came out shanks utah a land less traveled and it this was the first time if i'm correct that that you did a complete one subject show if you will why just landscapes and why did it take so long to do just landscapes because i'm real slow to figure things out Real slow to figure things out. The director of the gallery out there, the owner's Diane Stewart, and she's been a collector of mine since we first met, and that was about, oh gosh, I don't know, 11 years or so ago. And she only owns my, what I call my caption paintings, like some of those in that gallery over there. But her director is just a champion of a salesperson and happens to champion my cause, like my landscapes, and they'd had some pretty positive response to a couple they had. So she said, let's do a solo show of just landscapes. And I just, I thought, wow, yeah, that's a good idea. So we did. One of the questions that was asked in this book, and I just want to read it, is what can you say about pop art and appropriation? I appropriate. You're stealing object, other people's imagery. Stealing everywhere from all the time. You know, who was a Pablo Picasso once said, Good artists copy, great artists steal. And Leo de Rocher, 
who is one of the great legendary Hall of Fame baseball people. He wrote a book called, If You Ain't Stealing, You Ain't Trying. And yet that flies in the face of a lot of the Western masters in the last 100 years that mm -hmm. call this pop art, not real art. They do? And yet you've proven that it is, right? <laughs> yeah, and, it is. I mean, it's as real as any part of it. I think yeah. that they just don't like the fact that you're doing it so well. A little bit of jealousy there? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> What's next for Billy Shank? I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. Do I you, might do another dot painting. I was thinking about that because I bought, brought some of these artifacts that are in the cases, and I have one there that's a four-rigger sailboat. And it's in Lake Jackson Lake, which is in the Tetons, and the Tetons are in the background, and I rode up in the top. Columbus unwittingly discovers the Tetons. And I thought, that, so that may be my next painting. <laughs> you may, you've heard it right here. <laughs> right, right here. In this show, Billy Shank, The Mystic Visions of the West, there's 42 works. I'm just going to be bold and ask, do you have a favorite? Oh, I know. Your next one's your favorite, right? Not necessarily. I got two in a row right now I could shoot rather than keep. But other than that, oh, there's a few. I don't know. And I, my memory isn't real good, so I'd have to look at them to even give you that answer. Yeah. I don't know. Obviously, though, I think you enjoyed the totality of the show. Oh, yeah, I do. It looks good. Yeah. All right. And so what we're going to, this show is going to run through September 2nd. And we appreciate Billy Shank coming to, to visit with us. And this little podcast has been an interesting experience. Any dying questions out there that you don't think we even got remotely close to? I don't see any hands going up. So, folks, if you don't mind, would you give me... a Help us thank Billy Shank for his time here today. And, thank you. and podcast, podcast, it's art. Let's talk about it. Airs basically every other Wednesday, every other Thursday, 7 a.m. is the official time, but the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network kicks it off at usually around midnight, and we put it on our website so you can see that. You can get it via Apple Tunes, which is kind of cool. And we'll get this edited up and have a podcast of Billy Shank while this exhibition is still going. Billy, thank you for joining us today on It's Art. Let's talk about it. <laughs> thank you. I really All right, I will it. remind everybody. Yeah. I, I will remind everybody that the books are for sale. The museum store has the pricing on everything. And if you, you go and you buy one of those and you bring it to us, we'll substitute it for one that's signed because we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, so Some of the paintings are for sale too. And yeah, and I was, that was the last thing I was gonna mention. Some of the paintings are for sale. And uh, yes, you too can own a Billy Shank original. See me, because all things are negotiable. And uh, we'll, we'll see if we can sell a bunch of work here for Billy Shank. Thank you for coming tonight for the opening of Mystic Visions of the West, honoring the work of Billy Shank. So, thanks, Billy. Right, you betcha, Appreciate thank you. It. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of It's Art, Let's Talk About It, a production of the Museum of Western Art in Kerrville, Texas. We hope you'll visit the museum in person. We're located at 1550 Bandera Highway in Kerrville, Texas. Find out more about us by going to www.museumofwesternart.com. And we hope you'll join us next time for It's Art, Let's Talk About It. The podcast is produced by the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network.